Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. I would love to see you on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, where you can suggest both guests and questions for future episodes, and it would be fantastic to see you there. But to our episode today, and I have to say I'm really very proud of this one, today we're featuring an incredible entrepreneur in the form of Jason Vanderboom, found and CEO at Active Campaign, a sales and marketing automation platform that enables small business around the world to meaningfully connect and engage with their customers. Jason founded the company in 2003, and under his leadership, Active Campaign has flourished from a successful but small business, and then in 2013, they transitioned to the world of SaaS. Since, they've grown to more than $50 million in ARR in less than five years, while still maintaining both profitability and its culture, and they've also only raised a single $20 million private equity round to accelerate their growth, making them really, I guess, a market leader in terms of funds raised to ARR generated. I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Jason today, and so appreciate that. However, before we dive into the show, you might remember last month we had Krish, CEO and co-founder of Chargebee, join us as a guest on the show. Well, amongst other things, we chatted about pricing, bootstrapping and the right time to raise capital. And Krish's product, Chargebee, helps SaaS and subscription businesses scale globally by automating subscriptions, billing, invoicing and accounting. Using Chargebee, you can analyze key business metrics that impact growth such as MRR, LTV, quick ratio and net negative churn. Simply head over to Chargebee to sign up for a free trial. And speaking of great entrepreneurs like Krish, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. This time we'll hear from Brent Belm, CEO at Big Commerce. Big Commerce offers powerful e-commerce tools that turn shoppers into customers with a range of customizations to serve the needs of fast-growing brand and high-volume businesses. Hi, Harry. My tip is to remember the definition of disruptive technology. By definition, it always starts at the underserved low end of the market builds scale, and then migrates up to go after the mid-market and the mainstream of the market. Love that, Brent. And always nice to know that I'm not alone in the studio there, but starting small and building scale is a great recipe for success. And to learn how you can successfully grow your revenue more than 100% through integrated payments, check out WePay's latest case study at wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. Plus a bonus, you can even meet the WePay team at next month's Sasta annual. And finally, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS company that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, and customer success. They just grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news for you. Zocri allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MR. RR and even churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to zokri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com to sign up now. However, you've heard quite enough of my terrible English accent, and so I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Jason Vanderboom, founder and CEO at Active Campaign. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jason, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. As I said, so excited for this one. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. Yeah, appreciate you having me. Not at all, but I'd love to kick off with a little on you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and come to found the beast that is today, Active Campaign? 
Yeah, so it's actually kind of a long story in the making. If anyone's not familiar with Active Campaign, we basically exist to help small businesses grow. So it's basically a new take on marketing automation, where it's about being the right stack of tools and orchestrating the customer experience. But to get to that idea, to get that to that thesis of the market, it took me 16 years so far. So I started the company back in 03 and started with on-prem software selling to SMBs. So I took two extremely difficult things, combined them together, and did that over a decade. 13 years into it, I go for myself to about 20 people. So not exactly like that fast, explosive growth a lot of people talk about, but a solid business. But then from that point to now, we're now over 350 people adding about a couple hundred people in the last year alone. Can I ask, what was the, I mean, that's an extraordinary journey that, as you said, 13 years to 20 people and now 350 within the last three. What was the catalyst to that growth? Yeah, so it was a combination of making that decision to go from on-prem software to SaaS and then starting to find our fit within a new take on marketing automation. I mean, it wasn't some giant funding event. It wasn't some giant explosion of new customers coming in necessarily from some paid advertising or something like that. It was just truly genuine value we were providing and that just started to spread. Another question I I do just have to ask, and sorry, off schedule. I meet a lot of founders who maybe don't experience the explosive growth of maybe your slacks of the world. What advice would you have to them who are enduring building a solid, sustainable business, but they see the funding rounds, they see the AR numbers. What, What advice would you have for them? Like they should actually be truly excited about the fact that they're building a sustainable business. Nobody gives enough credit to people that are doing that. Even in those years where we were only 20 some people, that was actually a really solid business. And I'd argue probably worth more than some of these businesses that will just take a bunch of capital. And then if that one or two outcomes don't occur, even getting to like an exit of 50 or 100 or something like that is really hard. So I think there's this envy and this fear of needing to have this fast growth that can be somewhat toxic. For sure. I completely agree. And can I ask, you know, 16 years ago, the venture ecosystem isn't what it was today, but it was still there and prominent. Why did you not decide to raise like more traditional SaaS companies maybe have and and did do in that time? One, I don't think I would have probably been able to uh, raise very easily. Two, I just don't think it's something that you should strive for at all. Most things that you have to do early on as you start building out your sales team, as you start hiring a couple people here and there, you can find a way to pay for that. So like if you create this like concept that you need funding to do that or funding is some form of validation, that's just a flawed concept in my mind. There's plenty of forms of validation you can find outside of funding. So, so for those that, so for those that yeah. say, I need funding to build out my sales team and to hire my first VP of sales, what would you say? You're the first VP of sales, so figure it out. You need to be close to that early on. And then so like once you have it half figured out, I'd say try to hire three reps at least to start. Now that seems like, do you need funding for three people? Probably not. You could possibly, but there's also ways you can, one, either just generate some revenue or figure out how to pay for it in the short term. And if you are building that sustainable business, you have plenty of options beyond just venture funding. So you have a bunch of different options and and ways to make money. Will it be slightly slower? Perhaps. But if you can keep more of your company, it means you control your destiny more. So the biggest risk I see for early stage founders would be to give up too much early on, and that will affect things over time in a way that you may not like. Whereas like if you actually get sustainable growth to a certain point, opportunities will come to you. And that's when you should take funding is when the opportunities come to you, not when you need them, because then you sort of control the situation and most likely 
you can you actually have control of the destiny of the company over time, that means. No, absolutely. I think that leverage is priceless, but uh, so much to, to touch on that. I do want to break the show up today into a couple of different elements, starting on the market that we're going after, then moving to the product itself that we have, and then finishing on you, the founder, and the people that make the product. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Okay, so if we start from the top, we have the market, and the common question all founders ask me is on market entry, do I go SMB or started enterprise? When we chatted before, you said to me, SMB first works. So grabbing the bull by the horns, what leaves your thinking here, and why does SMB first work so well in your mind? Yeah, so first off, I love SMBs. Uh, I was one for well over a decade. I still consider ourselves a small business to an extent, and we've worked with tens of thousands of them. So like the whole idea of pushing to go enterprise early on sort of bothers me. For some businesses, that works really well, but for a couple of reasons why I like SMBs and why I think it's a good entry point. And to even stay there would be, it's easier to start with an idea, a higher volume of points of feedback, and possibly most importantly, you can design for what you're looking to actually do and achieve. Meaning you're not designing for a known need within an enterprise. That'll hardly revolutionize like a market or something like that typically. That's just solving for a known need. Um, so if you have an idea that's a little bit beyond that, starting with the SMB will allow you to do that because you don't have a single company that's going to just push you into a direction of their own choosing. The other thing I'd say is everyone always says like, don't design for an outcome, like an acquisition, IPO, et cetera. I say don't design for enterprise, meaning go SMB first, allow mid-market enterprise to buy from you. And it gives you a unique advantage in which you can sort of apply pressure to the enterprise space in a way that the space hasn't seen or hasn't requested. So if you start with enterprise first, you're hardly going to like shift the way of thinking there. You're just going to create something that's known and likely something that's similar to something in the space. No, I couldn't agree with you more there. And two kind of concerns or, or questions that come to my mind really lie around and the ACVs that are inherent within SMB. I have to admit, I've been prone to it myself along with other VCs that kind of immediately say to founders, ah, with those ACVs, it's going to take 20,000, 30,000 customers to scale to X number of revenue. How do you respond to the common VC statement of, ah, such small ACVs, the difficulty with the go-to-market? Yeah. How do you respond yeah. to that? Well, bluntly, I'd probably just say, who cares? But that's just, uh, I've seen the power of that compounding. And also, like, if you're providing that much value and whatnot, mid-market enterprise will start buying from you. That's always the situation I'd want to be in first before trying to sell to them, meaning that they're seeing enough value to come down and buy, and you're not forcing something on them. Even early on, like when it was just myself, and I was in art school and whatnot, I had businesses like IBM, Pixar, Texas Instruments, all, all buying licenses. Like I was not going after the enterprise, and half the time, you start within an enterprise in a department or in some small organization within it, right? So it's this not obsessing about that. They will come to you. And we've seen this with so many other companies that have been SMB first. I think it mostly this push from enterprise is just like it's every playbook, it's every thought. It always goes down to that, like ACVs are terrible. Yeah, on a blended basis, your ACV may be low, but you will start finding ways to get some larger ACVs in there as well. No, I love that. Let mid-market come to you. The other kind of common statement is that the mortality rate of SMBs is so high that your churn is inevitably just going to be so much higher. Is that something that you've seen? And, and how would you respond to that statement from most VCs? Yeah. So yeah, it's higher. But also, there's more of them. It's also a market that everyone uses and then leaves. So let's say you actually figure out retention. You figure out a way to have 100% plus revenue retention like we have with being focused on SMB. That's a fantastic place to be within, right? Because that means it's harder. But if you can figure that out and if you can provide enough value and provide enough organic way of customers adopting your platform, you have a unique advantage and you can 
can use all of that and you can use that momentum. And if your true care is like chipping away at mid-market or enterprise, you can use all of that to both fund and create this sort of uh, momentum towards taking on that space. Speaking of the momentum, you mentioned that the early big logos that you did have. I do have to ask, you mentioned obviously being the first sales rep yourself being the founder. What was that kind of incentive to scale out the sales team? Often people say it's at a million ARR, you've got to build out the sales team. What was your kind of thoughts around the right time to build out the sales team yourself and maybe step away from the front frontline process yourself as founder? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I waited too long, admittedly. So a couple of things. One, I, I've always been somewhat allergic to sales. So I wasn't actually taking my own advice and actually being the sales leader to start. And we didn't even have a sales team for the first decade or so, I'd say. And with that being said, I found the idea of adding salespeople and stuff. And so the reason I was allergic to it was I thought that I was the customer, right? And I'm not. So I was providing the service to our customers and getting that going sooner and experimenting more would have been great. Now, my thought on VP of sales, like, yeah, a lot of people think about in terms of revenue or in terms of customers or something like that. My take is I would probably try to run the sales team. And this is kind of what I did with a sales manager. So start with like three reps at least, then build out a sales team. Once you get like eight or nine people, get a sales manager. I would manage that directly up until about 20 or so people. Now, the reason for that, the findings from the sales process, it's going to impact your product direction, literally everything. You want to be really close to that. And despite, you know, maybe you're a product person or a tech person and you really don't want to do that and you think you're not great at it and you might not be the best at it, but you're probably better than anyone from the outside for that. So early on, being so close to that is important. And then also, if you go and hire a sales rep to create a sales team, I mean, you're expecting to get to 20 or 50 people. The person that starts as your VP of sales at one person may be able to scale up like that. But more often than not, maybe their sweet spot is in that, like just starting a sales team and getting into like 25 or 50. And then you're going to have to find someone else to help sort of take it further on. So being close to that critical customer touch point is really important in my mind. Uh, speaking of kind of scaling that sales team, uh, Tom Tungas has written a lot about the required ACVs to justify an inside sales team. Yeah. How do you think about that? Is there a number? Is that kind of one of those arbitrary SaaS posts? Or is there actually kind of some formula behind it in your mind? Yeah, so I get the point there. I think that in general, thinking that there's some price point you need for a rep is kind of, as a blanket statement, it's kind of BS. Meaning it's just wrong because even let's say you take an ACV, like I've had salespeople sell things down to three, $400 ACVs. Yes, the velocity there would have to be incredible. But if you find that balance of like automation and human touch in the sales process, it can be done. You're looking at a little bit more of a transactional sales process, maybe a little bit more less like heavy touching, less follow-ups, but you can adapt a sales process to just about any ACV. And now what I would also suggest is even if it looks on paper that it doesn't make a ton of sense, you can find ways to perhaps provide more value or perhaps sell people a little bit higher on along the way. So even if for a while your ACV that they're selling is pretty low, you're just getting started. So there's surely there's ways you can try to push further to try to boost that up if that's important to you. No, absolutely. And couldn't agree more with you on that boosting and upsell. We, we spoke there about kind of the sales team and the build out of it. I do want to blend in the, the element of product itself. I'm always permanently conflicted by the balance of being product first with building out the sales team. How did you think about this and doing it the right way? Let's start on that. I would say you have to start with product because ideally, like going back to like, you're not building something that people are specifically asking for in great detail, meaning like you're not just a consulting company. You're building a product, you're building a platform that's hopefully going to shift something in the market, right? So start with product. And then, like I said earlier, 
you are the salesperson to begin with. And it doesn't matter if like you're terrible at it. If you can't figure out how to sell your product and be the salesperson, be the sales leader, you're going to have so many other different problems along the way of scaling a business that you might as well get rid of that pain right now. So once you have things going, maintaining that product first mentality is kind of hard. And it's very easy to start seeing like opportunities in the way of like, if I just scale up my sales team and just focus on that, good things will happen. But I've seen all too often, you know, other companies doing that and you have a good year or two of like wild success, right? Everything looks amazing. And then all of a sudden there's a company that's a little bit more product first and product focus and they're able to disrupt you. So maintaining that product first while building a sales team is tricky. I've actually had to hold back building our sales team at a number of points because I don't want that to allow to happen. Now that looks like you're like leaving money on the table or it looks like, especially in the investment community or something, it would look just like idiotic to some. But I think long-term, if you truly care about that sustainable business and building something long-term, it's really the only route to take. Can I ask, how do you think about the right communication flow between product and sales? Often we see tension with sales promising the world to customers and then delivering it to the engineering team yeah, yeah. product displays that are unheard of. How do you think about the right communication flows? Yeah, so I think communication in a not-so-distant future, meaning like um, it's okay to have some like wild ideas out there and directions we're going in, but you know, not to the detail where you can sell to it as much. Also, it just goes to sales culture and sales team and sales leadership. That's really where it stops in my mind. And so like we've been fortunate to not have to deal with too much of that, but just culturally and with sales leadership, I think that's been the reason why. We've spoken a lot about the building out of the sales team, uh, building out of the product as well. In a lot of cases today, it's the assumed thinking that that both requires funding. Uh, we spoke before about the many options that one has, but we also spoke before this interview and you said to me about optimizing timing for funding. How can I not dive on this one, Jason? What did you mean by optimizing timing for funding? Yeah, so kind of going back to like, first off, nobody really cares that you got funding if you get it. So don't really celebrate it. Meaning the concept that funding is validation, that's a flawed concept. Your competitors maybe care. Uh, maybe if you're focusing on enterprise, it helps you. But otherwise, like if you're SMB, your customers probably are actually kind of scared if you get funding based on the push to enterprise all the time. So really find ways to just build things out. Like going back to like building out a sales team, like you can find a way to pay for three reps if you've already proven out a process and do things that just will not scale at all and do them all the time and keep doing them as you grow your business. Uh, we do so many things that like anyone just looking at it on paper would be puzzled by. But we're not designing for some like short-term need or trying to optimize some metric or, or KPI for someone to get some outcome. We're doing something based on what we know the value will be over time. So, and, and just know that you know more than you probably give yourself credit to. And then just let it happen in an ideal situation. It's not always possible for certain business, but let it happen naturally and expect it'll never happen. Meaning like there's probably no help on the way. If you just live by that idea and it's just being up to you, you're forced to build a sustainable business and something you control and not to be all doom and gloom with all of that. There is positive with that. When you do that, and if you build that sustainable business, you're providing unique value, you're staying really close to your customers, opportunities will come to you. And when you have them and they're not needed, then act on them. If you have opportunities and they are needed, try to find a different way. And using that, if at all possible, it's not always possible for some businesses, it wouldn't make sense. But if you can, it's a very advantageous place to be in. One other big positive that's often cited with kind of that big funding announcement is what it does in terms of allowing you to hire the very best candidates. Would you agree with that? Or is that maybe an unfair statement to make? Yeah, so I, I think it's unfortunately partially true because it provides some form of validation. But going back to my other point, you can get validation from a number of different areas. It doesn't have to be just that. So we experienced that ourselves earlier 
on where nobody knew about us, right? Like even in the market. So like hiring. And then if you don't have that validation of an investor or something like that, it's a little harder. But as a founder or as leadership in a company, like it's your job to be able to sell the product, sell the company, sell the vision. So like if you're not able to do that, you're going to have a lot of struggles. So I actually like the idea of being put in that situation and forced to try to sell the vision enough so that you can find a fantastic leader without having as much external validation. No, absolutely. I completely get you. I almost view it as a crutch that you kind of a strength exactly. as a leader yeah. because you have to do it without it. Yeah, absolutely. If we kind of merge everything that we've discussed together, though, we have the product, we have the people. And you said before to me that you can never have any form of distance between yourself and customer feedback. Sounds very nice. What does it look like in practice and reality, Jason? It's extremely painful in practice and reality. So my thought, and I am a huge believer in the idea of as a leader, as a founder of a company, you need to be consuming all feedback in some fashion. And it has to be direct and not in a summary form. Meaning like whether it be NPS or something like that, actually reading it. So despite having 60,000 plus customers, I read all NPS, all cancellations. Basically the first thing I do when I wake up and the last thing I do before I go to sleep. Now it's like the worst way to start your day for how some people would think, but you only get a true sense of where are the pain points, where are you providing value by looking at that level of detail. Now it's human nature to like want to make that easier. So like, what do we all do? We all create a role, maybe put someone in that and they're going to maybe create a fun report for you or something, or maybe check that out every couple weeks or something like that. But I've done that. I've, I've tried to just look at it in batches, things like that. Every time I've done that, I'm losing something. I'm losing like an understanding of the business of the customers, of the customer pain points, opportunities, and where value is being seen. And I'm just losing the ability to run the company as efficiently as I should. So that level of detail, like maybe it's not scalable forever. Plenty of people have told me that already, but like, I'm still okay. I'm still a happy person and whatnot. That gives you such a unique advantage and it becomes infectious as well. So like I do this, but now other leaders have started doing that and it's been spreading throughout the company where people want to be able to get all of this raw data in real time so they can check it out, which is an amazing cultural thing to happen. So I absolutely love that. I mean, I feel sorry for you uh, waking up, to but I do. I do. Have <laughs> I, to I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I do have to also in terms of the communication flow. You get that raw data. You get that feedback. What does that communication flow look like into the differing segments of the organization? Product, sales, marketing, from your kind of raw data ingestion. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I get like a raw data feed of it. We then have people tag some of it, and then it'll go off to different parts of the organization. And then we also have people working on all of the NPS cancellation churners and everything like that in more of a being able to take action on it. I'll see something or someone else will see something. We can just kind of note it. And then other people will follow up and, and see what the outcome is. And what's fascinating here is we're talking about like, I'll have discussions with like our CTO and others of an account that's like $49 MRR. And it's just absurd to others outside of the company that we're all spending the time, such a small like MRR. But that pain point and that opportunity that we're identifying and caring about the customer experience, regardless of ACV, is what creates a, a truly unique customer experience. So I think that's how you can build something that doesn't necessarily look right on paper all the time, but it'll prove to be a differentiator for you. Jason, listen, I love that. And it's one of the first times I've heard it on the show. I do have to ask it with kind of all that raw data, I automatically think of Ford's statement. If I made the product that people wanted, I would have made a faster horse. With so much data coming in, how do you determine between customer driven versus customer informed and that kind of distinguishing? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And so it's a guiding indicator of just value provided. That's it. And potential opportunities and whatnot. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to drive decisions directly 
directly from feedback. They're basically just indicators and, and little lights of something. Feedback is not your roadmap. If it is, you're going to be an irrelevant company, but it is going to expose some pain and opportunity. So what you do with that is more up to you, but you should never work directly off of it. I love that. Feedback is not your roadmap. That's a, a quote that should be coined. The yeah, final element yeah. though that I do have to touch on, Jason, is your role as CEO. As we mentioned earlier, an astounding 16 years. Tell me, with that in mind, yeah. how does the role of CEO change over time? You go through these phases of being tired and energy. No, it's really the... So I have an obsession of details and how things are executed, right? You can't be as in the details when there's hundreds of people, apparently. So influencing that obsession of details throughout the company, messaging your direction, what matters and whatnot, that's been the biggest thing for myself to learn along the journey. Often it's cited that it gets easier over time. Is that something that you would maybe agree with or fundamentally disagree with? I'd say some things definitely do. At the same time, whatever was easy and nice before is gone. Like someone else is doing that or something like that. So your problems get worse as well. I wouldn't say it really gets easier or harder. It's kind of the same level of difficult the entire way. So probably yeah. hard the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> That's reassuring to hear. That's yeah, funny, yeah. It's great. Over, over the 16 years, there must have been some pretty kind of pivotal moments. What have been yeah. some of the core inflection points in the company scaling that you saw firsthand as CEO? Yeah. So one was that move and that decision to go from on-prem to SaaS. It wasn't a sure thing. We're taking a profitable company that was growing and deciding to throw away all the revenue and start from scratch at $9 a month. The other I'd say is when we hit around 150 people or so, not being able to actually truly know people. Like, like I know a lot of people, but truly know them, kind of where they're trying to go, what they're trying to do, and be able to actually communicate with them all uh, on that truly individual level, it just becomes impossible. That was hard for myself to get past that point. Uh, another thing has been an interesting point of we've always been kind of this underdog, this sort of unknown in the market. As we've scaled, as we've started taking market share and whatnot, that's changing. So just seeing that happen, it's just been fascinating and, and, and validation. And another example of validation that doesn't require diluting the company. Can I ask, what was the hardest phase within the journey for you as CEO? And you seem incredibly calm, logical, rational. How do you deal with the shit hit the fan moments? I had a wonderful one in my on-prem days. So 2008, we had the financial thing occur, right? We're only eight people at the time. We started, we made this great decision to have a couple new products. They didn't really take off as we thought. So in a mid-year 2008, I go on my honeymoon, I come back and all of a sudden things are not good. The business is not as sustainable. So I had to just stop paying myself for about a year, lived off credit cards, things like that, found a way to do things. We did some crazy things in that time. The business was never really impacted. Employees were never impacted in any way, but we were doing like, uh, we had to even do some consulting work and whatnot to get through that phase. But just taking those things head on, finding a way, and there's there's usually a way to find a way through things and then learning from them. So like part of that situation caused us to think about our revenue stability and our growth and like that pushed to SaaS. It took longer than it should have to make the call to switch to SaaS from on-prem. But with every challenging thing, like they're actually blessings in a way because you're getting something out of it. So you should try to appreciate them after the fact once you get through it. My word, I, I hope for your composure one day. Uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty incredible to hear. But I do, Jason, want to move into my favorite element of any sure. interview, being the quick fire round. So I say a short statement. You give me your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds. Are you strapped in? Yep. No man's land in SaaS pricing. Does it exist or not really? I do not believe it exists. I believe that just sounds like a VP of sales that wants to run their same playbook over and over. Tell me, sales rep productivity, what's good in your mind? So there's plenty of things. In my mind, it's really executional excellence and caring about the details, and then everything else will trail that. 
Yeah, multi-year deals that often hailed. Are they always amazing? And is there anything to watch for? I may be the only person that hates annual and multi-year deals. Like I, I love them from a financial standpoint, but I love the pressure of a month-to-month -month deal. You have to provide value all the time and you can't get lazy. Yeah, you are on your own on that one. <laughs> Tell me, you're deserted. This one's a new one, but uh, it's right. going to be a good one. You're deserted on a desert island and you can take one thing. What would it be and why? Uh, that is a good one. Sounds cheesy, but I guess just family. Sounds like a nice vacation break. Tell me, let's finish on what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? The world doesn't end when you try things, meaning like don't ever impact your existing base. Don't experiment with pricing on them. Don't mess around with your existing customers, but experiment as much as possible and don't hold back on ideas with net new business. That's something that we've done time and time again, continue to do. Uh, we hold back on things. That's like this fear of success almost that causes it. Like if it's successful, we'll need X, Y, and Z. Just try it and deal with the consequences. Jason, I think you can tell from how little I stuck to the schedule, but I've so enjoyed today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and I can't wait for the exciting future ahead with Active Campaign. Yeah, no, thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed it. What did I say? Such an incredible guest and such an inspiring journey. And if you'd like to find out more from Jason, you can find him on Twitter at jvanderboom. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, managing subscriptions, billing and invoicing can turn into a nightmare for scaling SaaS businesses. From offering customers multiple payment options to managing free trials, taxes and accounting, the dependencies on your billing system grows with your SaaS enterprise. With Chargebee, though, you can turn your billing bottlenecks into a competitive advantage by automating the essentials of subscriptions, billing, and recurring revenue. Chargebee integrates with payment gateways like Stripe, Braintree, PayPal, and many, many more. Simply head over to chargebee.com to sign up for a free trial. And speaking of great entrepreneurs like Krish, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. This time we'll hear from Brent Belm, CEO of BigCommerce. BigCommerce offers powerful e-commerce tools that turn shoppers into customers with a range of customizations to serve the needs of fast-growing brand and high-volume businesses. Hi, Harry. My tip is to remember the definition of disruptive technology. By definition, it always starts at the underserved low end of the market, builds scale, and then migrates up to go after the mid-market and the mainstream of the market. Love that, Brent. And always nice to know that I'm not alone in the studio there, but starting small and building scale is a great recipe for success. And to learn how you can successfully grow your revenue more than 100% through integrated payments. Check out WePay's latest case study at WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. Plus a bonus, you can even meet the WePay team at next month's Sasta annual. And finally, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, and customer success, they just grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news for you. Zocra allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and even churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zocri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com to sign up now. As always, I cannot thank you enough for your support, and I cannot wait to bring you another exceptional episode next week.